This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone to another one of our Palliative PhD programs podcasts. My name is Connie Dolan, and as you know, I'm one of the faculty for the PhD program. I am joined today by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the University of Maryland graduate program, Masters in Palliative Care. And we are joined today by one of our colleagues, uh, Patrick Coyne. Patrick is, been influential in palliative care in many ways. Um, one in his role in oncology nursing, another in palliative program development, and then another just in terms of thinking about um, adding to the evidence base of palliative care. So currently, um, Patrick is um, a clinical nurse specialist, associate uh, assistant professor and director of the palliative care program at the Medical University of South Carolina at Charleston. Um, and he has had several programs that have um, been recognized by the Circle of Life program through the American Hospital Association. Um, he's served on boards for certification um, for hospice and palliative nurses and also on the Hospice and Palliative um, Nurses Association. He's been a co-PI for many uh, different research grants um, and also really helped in terms of education because he's one of the original faculty for the End of Life Nursing Education um, Consortium. So um, Patrick, welcome to um, our discussion today. Thanks, it's actually a pleasure to be here. So I've kind of given an introduction for you. Um, I don't know if there's other things that you would like to tell our students that um, have been sort of important to you along your career or um, kind of got you interested into this field of palliative care. Um, Wow, Um, I think I I got into palliative care before it had a name. And I remember um, working way back when as an orderly talking to patients on the night shift and they were all suffering in pain trying to figure out why aren't we doing better and that kind of was where I started and next thing I know I'm uh, my thesis was on cancer pain management um, back in 1983 or four and um, from there just kind of went into really finding everything I could about pain management uh, got an NIH grant, which took me to specialized pain management. Um, Life changes, ended up in the military for a few years, running an emergency room and a hospice, um, I was a hospice liaison liaison officer. So still keeping things involved that way, but also um, running an ER. Um, And so really kind of questioning why are we doing things and um, how could we do things better? And I, I think that kind of drove me a little bit and um, got hired by VCU to start a pain service, which I frankly thought was really easy managing post-op pain, kind of boring, um, but back to cancer pain and the cancer center hired me to do pain management. And um, over the years you learned, well, I could get the pain controlled, but now they're vomiting or they're depressed or they're dysmic. 
And so start really looking at how do we do better with that. Um, so start doing palliative care, like I said before, it had a name, at least that I knew, and um, had some great oncologists to work with, trying to brainstorm ways to do things. I think some of the things through the years that um, were important to me is I, I worked really hard to get legislation done in Virginia for palliative education, which still exists. Um, I got hospice covered, which wasn't covered in Virginia. And um, I, I think those were really um, important things. And the, I guess the other thing is I've really enjoyed um, teaching internationally in countries. So we worked to get um, like morphine in Tanzania uh, for the tumor hospital. So that was uh, a, a lot of work back in the early nineties too. And I still like doing some of the international work. So when you think about where you started to where you are now, are there things that you think are still current themes that we need to keep tabs on? Or do you feel like we've kind of moved ahead and there's other issues that we need to focus on? Um, no, we, boy, we got a long way to go. Um, a lot of our practice still isn't evidence-based. So I think there's a lot of research that needs to continue. Um, I think there are a lot of barriers to palliative care. Um, and they're hospice barriers. Um, none of the hospices are standardized. So I don't know what hospice offers compared to another, which drives me crazy since I'm dealing with 20 of them. Uh, if I look throughout the state, I'm dealing with more than 30 of them. And some will do certain things at home and others won't. Um, how palliative care education is obtained um, in some medical, nursing, pharmacy, and social work schools. Some get an hour, some get 30 hours. So how do we get a baseline for understanding? Because we know we're short. So many palliative care clinicians, we're not going to get everyone through a fellowship or everything, but I think there's primary basic palliative care that isn't being addressed and we need clinicians to be able to handle the 80% of easy pain management. Uh, we need administrators to understand why it's important and fund palliative care programs and um, because they don't pay for themselves, but it's doing the right thing and it saves them money. But, you know, a CEO who's older doesn't understand spending money and not seeing RVUs or money come back. They, it's a new business model for them to think of cost savings. And that takes a ton of education and a ton of time. Um, which you bring up that you should talk about um, and tell our students that, you know, you did some very important work in VCU of actually documenting this cost and could come out with an amount of money per patient. Um, so talk a little bit about that and, and how much energy that took, but why it was really important. Well, I mean, that was a team approach. So there's Tom Smith, Brian Cassell, and a few others that really kind of looked at we were under the gun by administration, like um, some head headhunters came in or budget cutters came in in the back in, 19, I guess it was 2002 or 2003 saying, you know, you need to save blank amount of money, uh, cut palliative care. And because um, you could immediately save all the salary support you guys are giving them. And, but none of these people that came in and consultants actually understood what we were doing. Um, and in fact, they'd never evaluated a palliative care program. They just saw 
you're spending money. We don't see how you're making any money back from them. And so we did in a week an incredible educational program for these budget cutters. And at the end of the week, they said, you should expand palliative care. But it, no one had looked at the cost savings. Nobody had looked at patient satisfaction. No one had looked at days in the ICU or length of stay or readmissions for that matter. Um, and so we had that data that we were already working on trying to understand um, how we were changing care in a health system. And they just pushed us. And um, I'm not even sure CAPSI was real then, but um, it, it was early. And so a lot of other outside facilities jumped in and said, you know, help VCU because they're coming our way next. And so, you know, we, we were getting resources. It was a great sharing of information among health systems very quickly to make our program survive. And I, I don't think the, the unit uh, staff itself knew how challenging that week was, but we were probably doing 20 hours a day work just to get this thing through to them. And at the end, um, you know, we had, uh, the Wall Street Journal come down and say, let's do an article because this makes no sense. And, you know, um, our hospital gets nervous when, if Wall Street wants to do an investigative report on a health system, um, it's usually not a good thing. So they were scared to death, but they let it happen. And they actually mirrored our numbers. I mean, within pennies of what we reported. And I think that just kind of took us off the fire and all of a sudden kind of showed this is important and it's the right thing to do. But we we were at the, I, I'd say the right place at the wrong time um, where we had to start demonstrating those things. And uh, to be honest, if, if it wasn't for Brian Cassell and, and Tom uh, and a few others who were at the table, I don't think any of us would have pulled this off. And then you subsequently, I mean, you did that for the hospital, but then you also did that for the community, um, for your office base, which I think was another really important step in terms of demonstrating that worth. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was important to demonstrate that, you know, the outpatient clinics were important and that they served a purpose and um, that if you could do it in community settings, like we started demonstrating with CAPSI, uh, it wasn't just academic settings that had these challenging patients. Um, and populations change. And so I think we learned how to do that. And I think the CAPSI registry, when it got established, helped demonstrate a little bit more of that. Uh, the VA's clearly shown some um, data with uh, patient satisfaction for sure. So all those things I think are pieces that um, are important, but it, it, it doesn't, it's funny when you show cost savings you may make a, a CEO really happy for a year or two, but they always want to cut budgets. And, you know, when a cardiac cath lab can bring in 20 million and you're saying, we're going to save you money, but you're not bringing in a million, um, they don't get excited. And every palliative care program is small. So you're, you're, you don't get a big voice at the table. So you got to make sure your voice is always heard, which is something I learned along the way is, you know, you've got to make point of meeting with the CEO, the CFO, they need to know what you're doing. They need to hear your stories. So 
but you know, that's an interesting thing that you would say that, Patrick. I wonder, do you feel like the voice of palliative care kind of changed over the last year with COVID? I know you were very involved with your health system. So, mm -hmm. you know, in um, crisis times, maybe that was an opportunity? Well, COVID clearly put us front and center, um, which I find really interesting because I know hospitals that closed their palliative care program during COVID to save money, um, which I, I don't understand because we were, we were drowning in work. We, I mean, it was, it was terrible um, because there weren't enough people to make those phone calls to talk to families to be at the bedside, to make sure the breathing was comfortable. I mean, uh, it's our group went to uh, seven days a week, 24 seven call because everybody was overwhelmed and everybody needed support. And I think it, I think all of a sudden the health system realized we had a major role. We just recently went back to um, five days a week with 24 seven call coverage and there's a lot of pushback going, how can you guys do that? I'm going, well, there's not enough of us to maintain this. And remember when we asked for more people and you didn't want to budget it? Now it's time for you guys to think about we need more people because this isn't sustainable. And in the COVID area, let's be honest, who took vacation? Right. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? I mean, so, you know, our team's a family and I think it was, it, we have them together. And, you know, that's, you've kind of set on a next point. And so I think, you know, for the students to understand, um, working with people is really important. Um, you know, we have our family of choice, which is our personal time, biological family, nuclear family, whatever we choose um, out of work. And then when we're working, it's really a work family um, and people have different roles and you have to figure it out. Um, I think, you know, it's really important for you to kind of talk about your philosophy of teamwork, because I can say that I have witnessed do you do this twice with teams that are committed to each other, that have a common theme of respect? And specifically in my mind, what I've witnessed is that um, everybody's all in together. And so if you're, you know, you're meeting all together, you're figuring out the day, if somebody's day falls apart, it's okay to ask for permission. Um, and the expectation of somebody's having a light day, they're going to help out. And I think at the end of the day, which is what has always been impressive to me, um, is that nobody's lagging behind. Everybody is walking out of the door together. And I think that that spirit of camaraderie, you know, is really an important um, quality of leadership that you've been able to establish. So do you want to kind of talk about how you've worked with your teams and to kind of create mm -hmm. that? Well, I think that I think that if you don't understand team concepts, you, you probably have a hard time understanding palliative care because the person with the most, most knowledge becomes the leader. So there are days I'm leading, there are days our social workers leading, there are days um, one of our physicians may be leading because of the issue that we're dealing with. And so I, I've got the title, but I don't need to lead if someone has more knowledge. So our chaplain's leading the bereavement program. Why would I lead it? She knows more about it than I ever will. And I think we also know if we lift together, it's an easier job for all of us. So we all lift together. So, you know, somebody's sick, sickness happens it's not like oh they're out again it's like okay she's having a rough week 
we all pull together and it's going to be a better week for all of us and um, for our patients and families. And it's the philosophy that um, everything impacts everyone else. So you take care of each other. And so, yeah, I don't want someone here at nine o'clock at night and someone else leaving at 2.30 in the afternoon, unless they have to be at their kid's graduation, then we're all here at nine o'clock at night. You know, all of this is, we, and the expectation is I'll help you, you help me, but we work together. And I think everyone has to have the, um, you know, uh, someone taught me this a long time ago. When you start a program or you're in a program, you gotta have a mission statement and you gotta have values and everyone's gotta have the same vision. And if you don't, how do you get to the place you're going to if everyone thinks it's different? And we talk about that all the time. And during COVID, it was a, a major discussion. And you know, when you're looking at the population you care for, annually we talk about that. Um, should we be seeing sickle cell patients? Well, they have a life-limiting illness, but do we have the bandwidth to give them the care that they need? And so, you know, these discussions go back and forth all the time on how do we do the best we can because if we stretch ourselves too thin then we're no good um but we're also leaving someone behind so how do we make that work and it can't be stagnant it's got to always be looked at well and i think i know from my past experience with some of the programs that i had when people when i would say what is our mission and vision they would poo poo me and i was like okay you know so then we adopted whatever the soundbite was for our palliative care program brochure which is never a good idea um, and you still have to go back and do that so i think that if you don't do your mission and vision up front you know that's a problem but i also think the other part that you were talking about is um, you know, I think sometimes there are palliative care teams that everybody is, you know, pretty much working from um, beneficence and, and trying to work together, but then somebody will um, decide to take an exceptional case. And they don't understand that that's not a one-time thing because once you do it, you've set a precedent because everybody will say, well, you did it for them. And so this understanding that we have to be really thoughtful about what special means because it does impact and the rest of the team. So I think about, um, you know, when I started our outpatient <clears throat> palliative care program, we were in the ALS clinic and in the oncology clinic. And the oncology clinic was actually easier because the oncologists really wanted to still have full um, kind of, they did really just wanted us to give them suggestions. And so we weren't kind of taking over care at all. Um, but, you know, the ALS um, team wanted us to take over the care of the patients when they were admitted into the hospital. Well, that had um, implications for who was on call for the weekend. And, you know, one of the things with our team was that the um, advanced practice providers, um, you know, were on call for the weekend. I started that as sort of stepping in to help out the team. But that started a whole discussion because if I was okay with it, okay, I'm a seasoned clinician, but we had new APPs who are stepping in who were not comfortable. And so we had to have a whole other discussion about what does that mean? How do they, how do we get them to feel comfortable um, because they're going to be covering and, and all that. I mean, so I think sometimes people feel like they're doing something good, which is great, but that you do have to check back with a team to make sure that that special case, you know, doesn't have other implications. I mean, yeah, I think that's stuff that, you know, one of the biggest problems that I found mostly with physicians, especially new fellows, is they've never worked with a team. 
and they they're not used to people jumping in saying I can help with that or why don't you look at that and so um, that's one of the biggest feedback I've gotten from our fellows is it took me weeks to understand I'm working with others and I think you have to kind of get people comfortable with that knowing that you don't have to do everything there are other experts to help you and you can learn from them and so we learn from each other our rounds every morning you know we're, we're running through like this morning we ran through 44 patients some need one-liners others need input from everyone around the table because they're complicated and that's our our group sharing and it's a little bit of our debriefing and then you know our staff meetings are always meant to be what are we doing well what do we fix right and so i think you have to put things in place um really up front and i think the one thing is talking about the patients brings everyone together and it's a reminder to everyone i may only have three patients but i'm going to be i mean yesterday i spent three hours in the er you know um and it being well it was more end up being more like five but everyone understood i just couldn't get out it was a disaster and so volume numbers don't matter because i can also see three patients in the icu who are intubated unresponsive with no family and i'm making sure they're comfortable i can do that in 15 minutes um versus a a bad car crash in the er you know nobody saw coming with my right. family so all of that is going to be a different consult and so if some programs look at numbers and you can't so i think when you round you understand you've got five patients from that are going to be horrible to get through they're going to be rough patients and i may have eight patients that can be very easy to take care of they're all going home with hospice families on board everyone's singing kumbaya and you know it's it's not a bad day um so you know how do we how do we spread the mix and make sure we're covering each other because well i think you also bring up this other part of like if you're going to be in the ed if you make that decision which um i know you and i've had a discussion so for our students to understand you know being in the ed is really means that you've kind of made a decision to, to affect care very much upstream. Um, but if you do that, then you have to make those consults a priority because it is the emergency room. They cannot wait. When they're calling you, they're calling you for a reason and you're either going to um, start the process that in fact they can go home from the emergency room. So maybe they go on a 23 hour observation area. Um, they're going to get admitted to the floor and your palliative care team is going to take over so that again, you're streamlining them through the ED, or in fact, they're going to die in the ED and you're going to help that happen. Um, that is the last one is never my, um, best choice, but it does happen. I, I was remember for a while, that we had a rash of several hospices that were sending people to the hospital at the very end and they died. To me, that's a, that's a failure unless we've had a discussion or something acute has happened. But, but talk a little bit about you know, your, your thoughts about the ED and why it's so important for palliative care teams to really make that commitment. Oh, ER is critical. I mean, um, if, if we have new consults, ER wins um, because you're impacting care, as you mentioned, from the second they answer the door and so you can start pain and symptom management so they can have conversations. You can talk goals of care. So do they really wanna be intubated? Or if they do get intubated, would it be a, um, a time limited trial? 
So would you like to try this for two or three days? If you're not getting better, should we come back and re-explore? You're clearly introducing the idea of palliative care on its role because, you know, we're not just clinicians. We're, you know, I've got social workers, I've got chaplains, I've got volunteers who can help you and your family. So how do we, you know, meet all of your, you and your family's needs? So I, there's a lot you can do there. And, um, and, and really, is there a way to get them home with, back home with hospice? Um, if they are going to the ICU, the ICU knows you're already involved, so you're partnering in care. Um, or do they have to go to the ICU because the family said, you know, or the patient said DNR, but their pain's still out of control, so we admit them for pain. You know, so all of the above. You know, how can we do all these things? So there's a, it, there, it, the ER is very work intense, but you can change the entire hospital experience if you meet them in the ER. So I, I love going to the ER. It is, it is fun. Sometimes it's a little um, like going, okay, this is what they live in every day. Um, and in my group, it's kind of fun. Everyone has little niches. I'm, I'm the ER, but we have some that really love cardiology, some like geriatrics. We've got one that loves Julian oncology. So, I mean, we have yeah. niches in our group. Which is, yeah, and I think it's a good thing to kind of think about where people like to be and help them because then also those floors get to know them as well. I'm going to switch a little bit because I know Lynn will love this part of thinking about, you know, you've done some interesting research studies. Um, you did nebulized fentanyl. You've done some ABHR suppositories. Talk to people about um, doing those when it may not be a randomized control trial, it might just be a small piece and sort of, you know, how did you kind of start doing that and um, what's the role of palliative care teams to do with that? Um, <laughs> I never thought of myself as doing research. So um, I, I guess it, I love asking the question, why or why not? So, um, you know, the nebulized fentanyl, it was just me sitting down thinking about how could we get dyspnea control quicker. And I'll be honest, this was in an error before there were pick lines and it took two days or three days to get a portacath in and IV access in a 89 year old lady who's cachexic didn't always happen quickly and hospitals don't like using sub-Q. So, I mean, there were a lot of things and when you're just making kind of, so I started thinking about fentanyl where it was lipophilic it should be absorbed rel relatively quickly. And if we start with a low dose, and I saw one line in one textbook saying, some people may think of fentanyl as a potential uh, inhaled source for dyspnea. I, I can't even remember where it was, but it was somewhere back in the 90s. I'm, I'm, it was an English textbook, but I can't even, maybe in Oxford. I don't know who it was, how's that? Um, so I started thinking, and I was working with a great oncologist, Tom Smith, who kind of said, well, we should try this. And so we tried it on three patients and all of them said, I feel so much better. And um, it, 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 three patients became 20 patients, 20 patients became 40. And it just, we kind of said, we really think this works. Um, so the first thing we did is we went back and we looked at 60 patients that got nebulized fentanyl. Um, and if we had enough data, we looked at respiratory rate, we looked at O2 sats, we looked at side effects, we looked at um, 
patient satisfaction. You know, um, if they, and we started asking those questions and retrospectively went back, uh, we had to throw away a, a lot of charts. And when we did the original study included patients with AIDS, um, but when we published it, they, they just want cancer patients. So we threw out um, probably about 15 or 20 patients, which made it really stronger. But in the 80% said it helped. Uh, respiratory rates went down, uh, satisfaction was high, O2 sets got better. Um, so we wanted to do a prospective study. Um, it took us five years to get through the IRB. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, because they said it was uh, a frail population because they had a terminal illness because we were saying we're using it on patients with life limiting disease. And so for five years, it just kept set. We rewrote the study, Tom and I, more times than I can tell you, and we could never get it through IRB. Finally, IRB let it go through, but they put so many stipulations on it um, that we could only enroll three patients. Wow. I mean, it was just like, it was, it was incredible. So we gave up, uh, I have to be honest with you. We just, you know, it's a generic drug, so nobody was gonna underwrite it. Um, and then I saw Deb uh, Dujan did a study with um, COPD and fentanyl nebs and their exercise tolerance went up. Well, that made good sense. I was like, go, go, you go. And um, when I got here in South Carolina, nobody had used fentanyl nebs. Um, and so, you know, it was like, show us, got to do something else. So we did another retrospective study. The results actually mirrored the study we did back in 2002. Um, so we haven't, we tried to do prospective, can't get money funded for it. You know, for the IRB pharmacies, we would need like 25 grand um, to do a study that I think should be done because I'd love to be a blinded prospective study, but I can't get funding to do it. Uh, I've got the study written. In fact, Tom has the study written at Hopkins and nobody can get funding. So, but I'm going to tell you my favorite research study. So there's a thing called scrambler and it's electrodes that treat neuropathy. So this guy comes to me, has this blue box, weighs 50 pounds. He brings it into the palliative care unit. He's talking about how it really works well. Read all this data from Italy. And he goes, we want you to, want you to be the first place in the United States trying this. We'll give you the machine. And so I'm sitting there, I go, well, I'm, I'm willing to listen. He plugs it in and starts smoking. We have to unplug, it doesn't work. Uh, and so you know, I called Tom and said, we ought to do this study just to show this thing is a bunch of no goodness. And you know, lo and behold, he brings in the machine and we train someone, we do it and everyone's getting better. I mean, it was just like, we were so convinced this would not work. And we ran 20 patients through and I think 18 said it was, it was the best they felt in years from chemo neuropathy, you know, they, and um, we went, we went and did, an, did two more studies with it, uh, one on failed back surgery, another one on neuropathy, and the results keep coming back good. So I, I, sometimes I, you know, my, my hypothesis failed. Um, but it, it was a fun study because I really went in there. Um, I really went in there to fail. Sorry, I just got to... Um, 
the show didn't work and it didn't. But, you know, we just did a thing on uh, existential distress, was, which was fun with our chaplains looking at a tool for looking at that. We've done, um, I mean, I, I always like to ask why. I did a sickle cell study looking, does temperature impact crisis? Because um, every sickle cell patient used to say, you know, when it's cold, I go into crisis. Well, I said, well, we got to study that. And it turned out it didn't. Can I ask a question? Can I ask a question here? Sure. sure. So I've been having discussions with people on my campus about um, should we have, um, is research in palliative care different from just general old research? So when we do a statistics course or qualitative or quantitative research, would it be beneficial to make to tailor it toward palliative care? Because I do believe there are special considerations, as you've mentioned, in doing research in palliative care. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. It, it's, it's hard research because the patients you're working with are available for such a short period of time. It, it, and I'm not even talking about lifespan, cognitively. And it's such a burden to them when they agree to do it. If they have to come to the hospital, you know, nowadays you can do more with uh, telehealth, which makes it a little bit easier, but it's still, it's still, I think a challenge that way. I think the other problem is that it's, um, besides consent and, and a frail population, it, they have, they know their time is limited and some are, want to give everything they can to help others and others want time with their family. And I respect that. So it's a hard population. And I can tell you the way they put us through that dismay thing, the consent was 12 pages. I, I couldn't get through it and I wasn't dying. Um, I mean, it just, I think we do make it really burdensome. And I, I think you have to look at it very differently because how are you gonna get this research done to do the right thing or to improve the evidence because you give up, you know? Um, and I hate to say it, you get beat up. Five years of getting beaten up, you just kind of say, mm. Yeah. Mm. What do so, you think? I mean, about, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Lynn. I was just going to say, what do you think about nebulized pyrosamide? Uh, the data doesn't support it. Um, right. And I've used it six or seven times before the last study, and I never saw any benefit. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Are there other things that you did studies on that you think were important or helped kind of with the field thinking about what was working and what wasn't? I kind of, I guess I bounced around on things that just interest me. A, a 10 study was kind of interesting um, to see if it helped with certain pain, painful procedures. And uh, looking at lidocaine, I, our program at VCU took care of sickle cell. So I was seeing sickle cell patients every day, lidocaine and ketamine. In um, we did studies on that in people with a uh, in sickle cell crisis, could we improve things? And um, I think those help, but these are all case, you know, these are. Oh, I think the ABH studies, absolutely. You made the choosing wisely from the academy. Well, that, and still to this day, nurses swear by ABH or ABHR gel. I've even reviewed papers for publication where they said, I know that study by Pat Coyne and Tom Smith show it doesn't get absorbed at all. But you know, my theory is you touch your face 17 times in an hour, touch the aromatherapy of your wrist wafts by. And I'm like, I give you full points for creative writing, but I'm not buying what you're selling. <laughs> that study, I, you know, it was funny because we, 
we just knew it wasn't, it shouldn't work, but nobody would believe us. And I think we had all lectured over the years and we finally just said, okay, it, it really shouldn't work. Let's do this study. And we were able to get a small grant to do the first study. And I'll tell you what, I got booed off the stage. I was at the uh, pharmacy association meeting when we, I presented the original study. And there were so many compounding pharmacists that just, it was made wrong at the wrong lectin. I mean, the pH was obviously off. And, um, and they said, you have to do a study with, with cancer patients. You can't do it with healthy volunteers because it's different. And um, so when we obviously we went back and we did the study with cancer patients who signed up for it, which was also a nightmare study to get through IRB. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, the, it failed and also no blood levels. Yeah, so, I mean, for our listeners, Pat, let's make sure we all know what we're talking about here. ABH gel is Ativan, Benadryl, and Haldol. And sometimes people throw an R for Reglan. And the thinking is if you apply it to the inner aspect of the wrist four times a day, that they will treat nausea. So my first contention is, aside from cancer, what other disease or symptom do you say, let's try four different drugs at one time and well, let's throw them up against the wall and see what sticks? It's ridiculous. And what, what Dr. Coyne found was that the Ativan and the Halbal didn't get absorbed at all, and the Benadryl was severely subtherapeutic and highly erratic. So there's no way in the world, if it doesn't get absorbed, there's a good chance it's not going to cross your blood-brain barrier and get to the vomiting center. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a very assessment. Well, the other part, though, is, is you know, in, when I was doing hospice, you know, it was the suppositories, right? So they might get absorbed, but, you know, I think of thinking about, again, every single one of those medications for older adults is on the beers list. So then when something doesn't work and you adjust it, you have no idea how you're adjusting it and you're still throwing on four drugs. In my mind, it was like similar, like, well, if we're gonna do that, let's just put a Thorazine suppository and put them out, right? I mean, what are we doing? But I think it's really interesting when, when you get um, some of the hospice orders and those are still on them, mm -hmm. um, and as a clinician and best practice, um, I am notorious for xing out things that I won't sign, and you know, calling up and saying, "So what's the what's the symptom that we're treating here? What are you expecting to happen?" Okay, there is one medication for that, or you know, I might choose something that could do that. But I said I'm not giving you all four. But you know, I wonder, um, you know, Patrick, you bring up a big point. Um, being from Massachusetts, where there was the whole. Um, uh, tragedy of compounding pharmacists with a whole steroid point and people died. I mean, you know, compounding ph pharmacists were not under even the DEA. There was no oversight for them. Um, and so, you know, there's a financial part for compounding and there wasn't any oversight. And I, ha I wonder if some of this compounding will change um, if what we were doing because there will have to be more data to it. And, and I think it was all done in with good intentions of like, we don't know what to do. And so let's just try and treat it. But, you know, I think we're, you know, 30 and 40 years out and it's time for us to really think about the, the science. No, I would agree. I I, um, I think I, I published something back in the early 2000s about compounding another place that got booed off the stage. Um, and I, I think it was because I was having such a hard time with some compounding pharmacists that there, we had one in town that was making 29 milligram long-acting morphine tablets every 12 hours and charging $4 a pill because 30 milligrams was too much for the patient. And I was just like, you know, this is highway robbery what's being done or a bone cream 
and the, 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 the ingredients were secret, why would I order it? Yeah. You know, so those are the kind of stuff that would drive me insane. Um, but you know, closed provider pharmacies that provide medications for hospices still have an extremely robust formulary of combinations of Ativan, Benadryl, Haldol, and Reglan for, for topical administration. My other enormous pet peeve is, I remember for years I did the talk with Cat Walker on speed dating with a hospice pharmacist at the Academy Annual Assembly meeting. And what, the first time we did it, I sent an email to a large hospice that I work with. And I said, anybody have any good medication tips? And I swear to you, 8 million nurses emailed me back and said, do you know you can take any tablet or tablet, tablet or capsule and insert it rectally and it'll get it completely absorbed? I'm like, that's not true. That's not true. And my favorite is Penitoin, where they advocate for poking a pinhole in the end. I don't know if that's for dramatic value or what, but the patient will be dead five years and they'll still be there in the rectal hole. I don't understand this. I don't understand it. Yeah, I, there, there's, there are so many um, old wives' tales that exist, and that I think you just have to keep, yeah. keep going and trying to get them through. But I'm, you know, to this day, I'm still hearing them when I'm on the phone saying, "Well, we're just going to give that sublingually," and I'm like, "Going, I don't think it's going to absorb quick enough if you're saying they're screaming right now." So yeah. why don't we put a sub-Q needle? I, I mean, it's just like, "Oh, we don't want to do that." I'm just yeah. like. But I do think we need to be careful to recognize that there are many compounds that are efficacious. Oh, I think the big thing is knowing when you've got good data. Like, for example, when a pharmacist can make a high concentrate and tensile morphine of 30 or 40 milligrams per mil, that's a godsend or methadone. I do like intensals, Patrick, even if it's, if it's particularly in a situation where it doesn't need to get rapidly absorbed, it's just a matter of the patient's unconscious using an intensile, propping their upper body up 30 degrees and putting up to one in the buccal cavity. Really, it gets GI absorption anyway, but yeah, it's a beautiful thing. In the back of the throat, and that's what exactly. I do. Exactly. Well, I, I think that what you're talking about, Patrick, also is this part about, you know, as as expert clinicians and leaders, how do we help just in time learning to say, you know, it is fine to use that, but let's just talk about the situation and what's going to happen. Right drug, but, you know, what's most effective. And I think, Lynn, to your point of, you know, I even think in the hospital when we have, um, you know, when we're ending up using a lot of a high dose morphine and you go from, you know, a 10 to one to a 50 to one. Okay, that's great and we need it, but then we have to teach people about what that means with the pump and what they can do with the breakthrough dosing because sometimes people don't understand that once you get up that high, then it's also gonna affect your breakthrough dose. And, and in certain sense, okay, that's great because it has to be a percentage, but I'm always intrigued when people, you know, we have people that let's say, 50 to 75 milligrams an hour of morphine and they want to give a one milligram morphine bolus. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Let's talk about cooking, right? When you increase the amount of the recipe, you have to increase the dose and, and really trying to help people understand those principles. But um, I mean, I think, you know, in all of this, you've talked about like leadership with the team, leadership in pharmacy, leadership in research. You know, when you think about where we are and where we're going, what, what do you worry about? Um, sustainability. Um, I worry a lot about that um, from a clinician point of view because I don't think there's enough of us in the population that's getting older and I'm seeing everyone, I'm seeing a lot of people that I kind of grew up with retiring so that worries me and um, I don't see many fellowships 
and I don't see many training opportunities for others, uh, nurses and social workers and pharmacists, which I think need to occur. So those things do bother me. I see hospitals trying to figure out how to do palliative care on the cheap. Um, like, let's just put an NP in there and we'll say we have palliative care and there is no um, psychosocial support. Um, and that kind of bothers me a lot too, saying, yeah, we offer it because the hospital eight miles down does, but so we're gonna say we do it. And if you're doing, if you're putting an NP or doc in place and call it palliative care, it's palliative medicine because really you're just doing pain and symptoms and let's just say what it is because there's no way I'm a chaplain. There's no way I'm giving spiritual support and um, I don't know the psychosocial. I don't know, I don't have time to meet with the family and do bereavement support um, or grief support. Um, it just, it's not, there's just not enough of it. And if you're a one person show, you can't do that. And so that bothers me. Um, because I think we, a good program is strong and I don't want the, the nationally palliative care to get weaker because people are building weak programs. So um, as you're kind of thinking about, you know, just of where we are, I mean, do you feel positive that we've made enough strides in the last 25, 30 years? And that if we continue at this rate, we'll continue to grow or i mean i'm optimistic let's be honest it wasn't here back then so look at what's evolved yeah and that's good um but how do you keep that momentum going right and i think that's i think that's it so i think you know the the phd program and master's program in maryland is a good example i think if you look at programs you know there are other programs around the country that are trying to do this stuff and i think there's a lot more educational resources that were not there. Um, I think those are all valuable, but you got to keep the momentum going. And um, I think we have such a little voice when you look at the dedicated research at NIH and NCI, um, you know, how many fellowships are supported through institutions. Um, given I came from an institution where we supported a fellowship with golf tournaments and um, praying that people would donate. Um, you can't survive on those kind of things because you don't hear that with other fellowships. And, you know, there's, and it has to be interdisciplinary. And how do you support training for chaplains and social workers and pharmacists and, and the nurses? Because you need the whole team. And I think that's hard for administrations to understand because there's not another team sport in medicine. Yeah. We're transdisciplinary, baby. Don't forget that in our master's and PhD. Transdisciplinary no, I, all the way. I get that, but it, it's just not, we don't fit into the medicine model well. Mm-hmm. And I think with hospitals going to ACO models, palliative care becomes critical. And so the more and more hospitals embrace the ACO or you know the accountable care organization model where you're responsible for this population if you don't get palliative care in that mix you're not going to do well but I'm finding a lot of bringing in later and afterthoughts or thinking one discipline is going to make it work and it's not fair to whoever they bring in it's not fair to the patients and families yeah 
Well, Patrick, you have made us think about a whole range of things. And I think for our students to understand that there's many possibilities for them to step into leadership from mm -hmm. policy that you helped with the state of getting educational requirements to thinking about even small research, whether you can get it funded or not, sometimes it's still important to do it for the field. Um, thinking about the clinical expertise, um, thinking about education, you know, local and educational wise, and then also just thinking about um, strategically, you know, working within a, um, a hospital administration of kind of um, showing your value. Um, so thanks for everything that you've done. Thank you for having a really interesting discussion today. And we're very uh, grateful for all that you've done. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. You guys take care. Bye. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.